Robots Radio presents... In 2015, director Alejandro G. Iñárritu and star Leonardo DiCaprio gave the world a tortuous journey from death to revenge. In 2020, our springtime of swill takes us into the realm of corn whiskey. The film is The Revenant. The whiskey is mellow corn. And we'll review them both. This is The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 2015 film, The Revenant. Brad, this is kind of a big deal for us because we're coming off of our four weeks of Robin Williams. We're kind of returning to the normal randomness of this list of movies that we're watching. <laughs> and it's it's also with kind a very, of nice. With a very not normal movie. Yeah, for sure. But it's also really nice to be able to watch a movie that came out semi-recently. You know, I think five years is probably a good amount of time before you can really start to evaluate a movie and its impact and and all of the hype and the media and everything that went along with it have faded. And this movie is coming up on its fifth anniversary. So I'm really excited to talk about it today. Brad, I have to ask you, you know, right at the top, had you ever seen The Revenant prior to watching it for our podcast? Honestly, I hadn't. Um, This is a film I've wanted to watch for a while, you know, knowing that it's Leo's Oscar win. And so but then, you know, we started the podcast and I saw it on the list and I was like, you know what, I'm going to hold off. So it's probably been about a year now that I've been I've been really looking forward to doing this film. And I was I was honestly a little pleasantly surprised. You know, we were working so far ahead on recordings that I kind of just lost track of what we were doing. And I, I didn't realize that right after our month of Robin Williams, we were jumping into the deep end with uh, Leo and The Revenant. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's a really good way to put it, actually. And this movie really has developed kind of a reputation. And I'm going to do my part because I really like this movie to try to tear down some of that reputation today because this movie has come to be seen as Leo thrashing and grunting and begging for an Oscar. And I think to some extent that's true. I do think it's a really interesting what if scenario. Like if Leo had won the Oscar, let's say for The Wolf of Wall Street 2013, would he even make this movie? You know, I do think to some extent he takes this movie on because he's trying to get that Oscar. He's making tons and tons of movies. Once he finally wins that Oscar, he doesn't make another movie for four years. He didn't come back up, you know, in the public eye until just this past year with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So I do think, you know, some of it's justified. Obviously, Leo put himself through hell making this movie because he wanted that Oscar so badly. But I also think sometimes when people look at this movie, they kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater. And they dismiss the movie as a whole because they just see it as this kind of really transparent attempt by Leo to get his Oscar. Well, the thing with Leo is, you know, you have A-list stars and then you have stars like Leo that warp the gravity around them. Like he is such a huge influence on Hollywood that it's understandable that he would push for this type of a, a role and that when he gets it, You know, most people are going to talk about this movie not for Lubetsky's cinematography or Inuritu's, you know, direction. They're going to talk about Leo because, you know, he's the star. He's the one who makes all the money. He's the one who draws in the viewers. 
And that is unfortunate because this movie has so much more to offer. But I, I, I'm not going to lie, Bob, when he's fighting uh, Tom Hardy at the end of the movie and he gets stabbed and they're on the ground and then he starts crawling again. I'm like, oh, here we go. We're crawling again. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> they they really do love to show Leo gripping into the ground claw, with claw like fists, just just grasping and you know crawling forward. I they They really, really loved that in this movie. Yeah, so here's the thing. I think that this movie kind of exists in, like, a both-and world. Like, I think it is more than its critics make it out to be, but it also is exactly what its critics make it out to be. It is a super self-indulgent, kind of pretentious movie that's probably a little bit too long, that tries to dig into a ton of different themes of spirituality and things like that. And I can see how this movie might not be up some people's alley. And I can also see how some more cynical people might see this just as a kind of desperate attempt to get Oscars. And so I kind of understand everybody's perspective on this movie. I just happen to really, really like it. And Brad, I can't wait to hear what you thought of the movie. But before we get to that point, why don't we introduce our favorite segment on the podcast, which we call Brad Explains. That's where Brad, most of the time seeing a movie for the first time, breaks down the plot of the movie for us and for our listeners. So Brad, can you tell us what happens in the film The Revenant? Yeah. And honestly, Bob, I think I'm going to start by reading you a definition that I have found of what a revenant is. Okay. A revenant forms from the soul of a mortal who met a cruel and undeserving fate. It claws its way back into the world to seek revenge against the one who wronged it. Mm. So with that definition in mind, we have Leo, who is a scout and a guide for a trapping company. It seems to be sometime in the 1800s, and the company is attacked by a group of Native Americans. And they drive off the Americans, and the Americans attempt to escape back east uh, to their, their fort. And on the way back, um, Leonardo DiCaprio, playing a character named Hugh Glass, is attacked by a bear, just viciously mauled. Um, he is able to kill the bear, and when the men find him, they try to tend to his wounds for a little bit, but they're still on the run from the Native Americans who are hunting them. And so they eventually leave him there with a few other men, uh, most likely to die. The people that he is left with is a young boy an older trapper, and his son, who is half Native American. And we find out that Leo is the father to this you know, half Native American son. And they end up, the older trapper, a man named Fitzgerald, you know, attempts to leave him for dead. And when he tries to kill off Leo, his son starts screaming for help. And Tom Hardy, playing Fitzgerald, kills him. Following that, he tries to kill Leonardo Di DiCaprio, but the young trapper finds him and they run off uh, into the wilderness and escape back to the fort. Uh, and the rest of the movie is about how Leo ends up getting up out of this shallow grave that he was left in, rising like a revenant and pursuing vengeance across the land. Um, you see him in, you know, defy nature. You see him defy humans, um, all to find his way back to Fitzgerald and murder him for killing his boy. Yeah, I mean, it really is a very simple plot of a movie. It's your kind of classic revenge story, and it also is man against nature. It's a survival movie. 
But Brad, I love that you gave the definition of a revenant right off the top, because it, uh, first of all, it's not a word that I was familiar with before this movie. But the themes in this movie that that go a little bit deeper than just the basic revenge plot, there's so much kind of, I don't know what you would call it, just spirituality floating throughout this movie. And you can see how each individual character in the movie is kind of interacting with the the spirituality that's on display, whether it's, you know, being one with nature or having visions of dead relatives, things like that. But on top of that, you have this really great scene where Leo finally makes it back to the fort to try to find Fitzgerald and exact his revenge. And he's having a conversation uh, with the captain there. And he tells the captain, I'm not afraid to die anymore because I've done it already. I got him trapped. He just, he doesn't know it yet. How can you be so sure? I think I have everything to lose. All I had was that boy. And he took him from me. I can't let you go back out there. Not again. I ain't afraid to die anymore. I've done it already. And so the whole theme of the film is that Leo is kind of in this in-between place between being a dead man and being alive. And it seems like at many points he's he's on the verge of death and he can kind of see what's happening, you know, in the in the spirit world around him. It's a really interesting way to portray this struggle against, you know, life and death and man versus nature. And I'm really excited to get into talking about some of those deeper themes. But I think the first thing we really have to talk about, Brad, is is DiCaprio's performance. I mean, that's what sold this movie. You were already kind of hinting at this a little bit ago, but I think Leo might be the last great movie star. He's certainly the last star who can sell a movie based on his name alone and make hundreds of millions of dollars off of it. When you look at this movie on paper, it is not the kind of movie that you would see teenagers flocking to go see. And yet I remember when I went to see this movie in the theater, it was full of young people and people who would not typically gravitate towards a movie like this. And yet they'll give it a try simply because Leonardo DiCaprio is in it. So, Brad, I think we have to take into consideration what does Leo bring to this movie based on just his star power alone? But then also, what did you think of his actual performance in the film? Man, that honestly, I really struggled with Leo's performance in this movie. It's hard for me to ignore that voice in my head that says he's he's kind of just doing this for an Oscar. Mm -hmm. um, I as I'm watching this film, I just don't think Leo is and this is this is just going to sound unfair to him because I, I think he actually did a really good job in this role. I just don't think he's built for gritty frontier America movie, you know, like a last yeah, of the, I, I can, I can like a last of the Mohicans, Daniel Day Lewis type of thing. I there's mm -hmm. something about Leo that he is more fit to be a Howard Hughes. You know what I mean? To be a Wolf of Wall Street. A, a Jay Gatsby. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah, yeah, he's just fit for those roles, and those are the roles that we fell in love with him for. So it feels weird to me that he won an Oscar for this movie and not some of those other ones. The frustrating thing is, I actually do think he deserved an Oscar for this movie. The, the performance was spectacular. 
I just also happen to think he probably deserves about two to three other Oscars for performances that are a little more suited to who he is as an actor. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. And I feel like I can't speak for everyone who saw this movie, Brad, but at least for me, I had that same internal struggle watching the movie where it's like, he's really good. And there are scenes where I get totally lost in his performance. And then there are other scenes where I become very immediately aware, oh, I'm watching Leonardo DiCaprio right now, even covered in all this, you know, prosthetic makeup of bare scars and everything else. Like, He's he's a very beautiful man. Dude, like it's, it's those baby blues, man. It really is. And and I'm telling you, man, like it does seem unfair a little bit to him for us to say what we're saying right now. And yet at the same time, he is such a huge colossal megastar that his aura kind of carries with him into any movie that he's in. That's why he was so perfectly suited for The Great Gatsby. You know, the first time you see Gatsby in that movie, He's surrounded by this sort of aura of everybody fawning over him. And there's that really popular gift that people send each other of him toasting with the champagne. And it's like a perfect, iconic moment in that movie. And in this movie, he's asked to do the exact opposite. I mean, he's stripped down to the bare essentials. He is laid low and he does a really good job with it. But no matter what he does, no matter how good he is, no matter how much he commits to a role and disappears into it, he's never quite able to shed the Leonardo DiCaprio celebrity aura that that just accompanies him everywhere. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it, it really does. I, honestly, it this whole conversation is reminding me of the exact opposite thing that I think happened to another Hollywood legend, which is John Wayne. You know, he his performance in in The Quiet Man might be one of the best performances I've ever seen in a movie. I I absolutely love him in that film. And a lot of people at the time thought that he deserved the Oscar for that film. Now, the the thing is, just as with Leo, you know, The Revenant is kind of a leap from where he normally acts. The Quiet Man was was pretty different than a normal John Wayne film. But what does John Wayne finally win an Oscar for? It's true grit. It's him back to his roots, you know, Wild West type of film. And so it's kind of the opposite thing happening here. John Wayne should have won for something that's outside of his wheelhouse, but he wins for in his wheelhouse. And then Leo wins for something that's so far beyond what he normally does. And and it just I don't know, it, it feels strange that he didn't ever win for anything else. I I'm just flabbergasted by Leo's career because he's so daggone good. How does he only have one Oscar? So here's the struggle I have with the movie itself then is like, I can understand the Leo backlash a little bit. I can understand how Leo's own personal quest to get an Oscar kind of takes away from the movie as a whole and how, you know, critics couldn't quite overlook what Leo's personal motivation was as opposed to what the whole movie was trying to communicate. I understand all that. What my struggle is, is like, would this movie have been better served with somebody else in the lead role who isn't a megastar? And I go back and forth because Leo's really, really good in this movie. And I don't think he's miscast, but there's just always that extra obstacle you have to overcome when you're watching somebody this famous in a movie because you can't quite get past the DiCaprio-ness of it all. Yeah. And so, I don't know, Brad, do you think that the movie itself would have been better off with somebody else in the lead role? Not anybody in particular, just like, you know, 
if there was an actor out there who could give as good of a performance and wasn't as mega famous as DiCaprio, do you think it would have served the movie better? If you look at the film in a void and you just take away everything else, I think the answer is no. I, I think Leo is is great in this role. But when you look at it in the realm of reality, <laughs> when you look at it with real world consequences, I think the answer might be yes. It, it might have been better to have someone else in that role. Honestly, you know, we've talked about this person before as as somewhat of a younger, cheaper <laughs> version of Leo who also was in this movie. I think Tom Hardy actually could have been a good Hugh Glass in this film. Well, maybe we should get into talking about Tom Hardy then. He is the foil to DiCaprio. The great thing about Tom Hardy is that he is just a phenomenal actor. And there are only a few people that I think can really hold their own against somebody like DiCaprio. And yet, even in those moments where they cut away from DiCaprio's struggle and they follow Fitzgerald, who is Tom Hardy, I was I was engaged. I was invested. He holds his own. And then in that final sequence where they have their last sort of confrontation or battle, it does really seem like a clash of titans. And I think that says a lot about Tom Hardy's acting ability that he feels like a big enough presence to not just match DiCaprio's acting chops, but also to, in some ways, overcome that aura of having a having to share the screen with a megastar. Hi, right, you can quit polishing that rifle when I'm talking to you. I'm working on it. You can work on it later when I'm done talking to you. Look at me, Scout. That's enough! You're forgetting your place, boy. As far as I can tell, my place is right here on the smart end of this rifle. I, I'm not going to lie. There's a snarky part of me that when that final fight started, I was like, oh, I've seen Warrior. I know how this is going to end. <laughs> Tom, Tom Hardy can't win the big fight. No, that's that's the big knock on Tom Hardy. He wins all the regular season games and does nothing in the playoffs. That's true, man. He breaks Batman's back. But in the end, just can't win the big game. <laughs> yeah, Tom Hardy, man, what a what a poor guy. He, he just gets beat up by the end of the movie. Every Listen, movie he's in. Tom Hardy dragged DiCaprio into a shallow grave and left him for dead. And then gets killed by him like a month later. Like, yeah, no this it, this is definitely the most deserved uh, beat up, <laughs> you know. Beat but down. also, like, I, part of me feels like he he blew a three to one lead. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, how do you, how do you get killed by that guy? Yeah, I I would I would tend to agree with you on that. Yeah, but as far as Tom's actual performance goes, I really liked him in this movie. I, I don't think it's his best role. I, I think there were a few moments in the film where he just kind of deadpans and shows no emotion. And I'm kind of like, I don't know. I feel like I could have gotten a little more from him. But overall, I, man, I just love Tom Hardy as a villain. He is such a good bad guy. He he has such an easily hateable face when he's the bad guy. I, there's just something about him where you just go, man, I yeah, you, you throw him in the river. One, one of the things that I really love about Tom Hardy is that he is so capable of being menacing and not just like physically intimidating, but you know, there's this really great sequence, which I want to talk about probably after the break, when we get into our analysis, where he's telling the the trapper that's with him, Jim Bridger, this story about how uh, his dad found God and that his dad wasn't a religious man. And basically the moral of the story is that uh, Tom Hardy thinks that he is God. 
You know, he he thinks that he can defeat anybody, that he is the master of his own fate. But the way he tells this story, and then they cut to you know Jim Bridger's face after he tells this story, and this kid is terrified. And you really get the sense that, oh yeah, this guy is very unstable. You cannot trust him. And uh, I think it works really, really well. Tom Hardy just has this really natural ability to convey, I don't know, what's the word? Fear. Yeah, menace, <laughs> like, for he sure. Just, yeah. He doesn't portray fear. He exudes just dominance and power, and he draws fear out of the people that he is exerting that influence over. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, and, I, and one thing I want to say, you know, we haven't touched on like the technical stuff yet. We haven't talked about the directing or anything, but... This movie is by the guy that made Birdman, Inuritsu, and it's the same cinematographer as Birdman. And we kind of talked about this in the Birdman episode a little bit, but the cinematographer, Emmanuel Lubezki, he loves these long takes and he loves getting hyper close-ups of people. And I feel like Lubezki's camera work is kind of the great equalizer because you see in a cast of characters that he's shooting who's a really great actor and who's not. Because you have to be like so subtle and so naturalistic because it the camera picks up every little tiny tick and every movement of your face so much more than a typical Hollywood camera setup does. And I, that's why I thought that Michael Keaton was so good in Birdman, because it, he's just he's just behaving. He's not acting. There are a couple people in this movie that I feel like you can tell they're acting. You can tell they're trying really hard. And the camera picks that up. But with both Leo and Tom Hardy, I really feel like their performance never seemed too showy to me. It it always seemed like it was happening naturally in front of you. Yeah. And the third character that I I liked in the movie, but I feel like he falls into that category of of a little bit of overacting, maybe, especially with, like you said, Lubetsky's camera work, just it forces you to either be natural or unnatural. And and that's Donald Gleason. Yeah, for I, sure. I, I actually really liked him in this film. I, I thought he was a compelling part of the story. I think that he gives a lot of heart to the story. But there are a few scenes where he's just a little bit cringy, where you're kind of like, yeah, you can tell that he's just not the caliber of a, of a Tom Hardy or a Leo DiCaprio. Yeah, especially the sequence when they finally find Glass wandering around in the woods and Donald Gleason realizes that Tom Hardy has been lying to him the whole time, that he wasn't dead, obviously. And he rides back to the fort, and there's this long take of him just kind of scanning the the fort, looking for Tom Hardy. And he has this look on his face that's just like, I'm angry. Yes. And, and, do you know what I mean? Like, yep. and it doesn't seem like a natural beat. It seems like a director said action, and then he put an angry look on his face. Yeah. And I think that... I don't know what it is about the way Lubeski shoots actors, but you can just tell when it's authentic and when it's not. Yeah. And honestly, it, it reminds me of another Lubeski film, The Tree of Life. In that film, even with the the child actors and Jessica Chastain and Brad Pitt, like all of them do such a beautiful job of just I, I love the way you put it, Bob. They just behave. You know, they're just normal people behaving. And with Donald Gleason, there are moments where you're kind of like Oh, yeah, you can just tell the act. The director was like, hey, you're angry. You've been betrayed. You've been lied to. Get out there and find that guy. And Donald Lee's like, all right, I'm, I'm going to go find him. Don't don't you worry. I'm going to go get him. I'm going to be angry. And and he just kind of feels like an eager kid 
on the set with much more mature actors. But before we take a break, Brad, I do want to touch a little bit on some of these more technical elements. We're getting into it a little bit more. I want to hear what you think of Lubezki's camera work in this movie, but also what you thought overall of of what the director Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu did with the film. So let's start with Lubezki. Well, honestly, this film most reminds me of another film we watched uh, that I reviewed very poorly, which would be The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. And the the reason being, you know, the opening of both movies, you're kind of set off in the wilderness and there's a large fight. You know, they they rob the train in Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. And in The Revenant, the Native American attack happens right off the bat. And then you kind of move from that exciting piece of violence into a long and meandering film. But honestly, I think one of the reasons I like this film more is because this movie with Lubetsky's camera work is more willing to spend time up close and personal with its characters. I, I just love the, the way he follows Leo through the wilderness. And you get the large, sweeping, grand narrative type camera shots, but you also get some of those camera shots where you're right next to Leo as he's trudging and you see those mountains just looming above him in the background, you know, and you see them as like these mountains are representative of, you know, Mother Nature being Leo's adversary at this moment. I I really enjoy how personal he makes nature in this film. So the thing with Lubezki's camera work, especially in movies like Tree of Life, Birdman, and The Revenant, I want to say it's really high risk, high reward. You know what I mean? Like, I think that this movie is probably the one that I have the most problems with the camera work, because I think that there are a lot of moments where it really does call attention to itself. And I don't know how I feel about that. You know, Lubezki also shot one of my favorite movies of all time, Children of Men. And there's this really great sequence in that movie where somebody gets shot and uh, like the blood splatters onto the camera frame and you you have these little dots of blood, but the shot keeps going. And so for the rest of that scene, there's blood on the camera and, you know, it works, but you're also very aware at moments that there is a camera that is filming something yeah. and it kind of it kind of removes you from the world of the film. There's a couple moments in this movie where that happens, where water or snow gets splashed on the camera. There's actually one right at the beginning of the movie when Tom Hardy is first threatening Leo and his son, and he's loading pelts onto like a wagon or something, and it looks like he bumps the camera, and they left it in the movie. And then I was like, oh, I totally, like, it just broke my immersion. Yeah. You know what I mean? And but but then at the same time, there's so many moments where that style of filmmaking, that style of camera work works so well that it's like, do I forgive the mistakes because what it ultimately yields is so good? Yeah, I I really struggled with that. If there's anything I didn't care for in the cinematography, it was those moments where Tom Hardy bumps the camera when the bear breathes right on the lens and it fogs up the lens. Mm -hmm. um, or when Leo finishes the movie by looking directly into the soul of the camera. Yeah. Like moments like that make me they break immersion. And I don't like that. There are movies where it's OK to break the fourth wall. I just don't think that this was one of them. And, mm. and, and I really struggled with a few of those moments throughout the film. Well, and I think ultimately those decisions come back to Inuritu. Like, this is his vision. 
And I really do love what he does with this film. I think he takes a really simple concept and he injects it with something deeper. And I don't think that it's like a very deep thing to say the physical journey that Leo is going through is a a mirror of a spiritual journey. Like that's not a really deep metaphor to make. And I think in the hands of a lesser filmmaker, this movie would be even more like eye rolling and pretentious. But part of what I love about the, the new wave of Mexican directors that has really become prominent is that they take some of the elements of storytelling that they have grown up with, the, the magical realism, the, the spirituality, and they infuse it into their movies in ways that seems really authentic. And I think when you have a really good filmmaker like Inuritu, He can make really obvious connections and obvious metaphors seem really artistic and not forced. And that's what I love about what he does with this movie. But I also think, like you said, Brad, there are also moments where it's like, I don't know if you needed to include every single thing that you had in this movie. It does seem a little bit, you know, indulgent. I'll just say that. Yeah, I'm right there with you, Bob. But I think before we get into the spiritual elements of this film... I think we might need a few spirits of our own. Yeah, let's give this mellow corn a try, Brad. Right, so today we are checking out Mellow Corn. Now, Mellow Corn is a product of Heaven Hill Distillery, which is probably top to bottom my favorite distillery, uh, especially of bourbon products. Mellow Corn is what's called a corn whiskey. Now, we have learned on this podcast that bourbon uh, is made up of a mash bill or a recipe that has legal requirements. For something to be a bourbon, it has to have at least 51% corn in its mash bill. For something to be able to be called a corn whiskey, it has to have at least 80% corn in the mash bill. So uh, some of the requirements that go beyond that are that it has to either be aged in a used charred barrel, not a new one, a used one, or a new uncharred barrel. And the reason for that is if they put it into a new charred barrel, it would basically just be a bourbon. Because that's the requirement for something to be a bourbon. Because at 80% corn, it would still meet all the requirements for a bourbon. So it would be good. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So this is the interesting thing. I've never had a corn whiskey other than mellow corn before. There are people that swear up and down that this is the best budget bourbon or budget whiskey that you can get. This thing has an incredible following. I actually reached out to the Heaven Hill Distillery uh, for some clarification points. They said that mellow corn is aged only in used charred barrels. The thing about it, though, Brad, is like when you put something in a used barrel, it doesn't get quite the concentrated stuff out of the barrel because whatever was in it before is what got the good stuff. This is kind of like, you know, this is getting the residual whatever's left behind. And you can tell when it comes to the color of this whiskey. I was going to say, Bob, when I poured this out, it looks like I could have been pouring another liquid into it, if you catch my drift. Yeah, it is a very uh, well-hydrated urine color. <laughs> it's a very light <laughs> yellow. and uh, It is not very pleasing to the eye. It's not. 
And so I'm a little bit skeptical. Now, Brad, I have to say, I've tried this before. I'm not going to give away what I thought of it before now. Have you ever tried this whiskey before? I have never heard of mellow corn. Okay. So. And this is, this is again, this is one of those whiskeys that you can really only get in Kentucky. So when people go to Kentucky, they're picking up bottles of this. It is sort of a bottom shelf. It costs about $14 for a fifth. Uh, so it fits comfortably into our springtime of swill. But, but it's not, I'm, but it's not on like the cheap end. It's not like seven or eight bucks for this. No. And I think Heaven Hill is starting to realize that like the cult following that this has is something they can leverage into charging a few dollars more. Cause I think at one point this was selling for under $10. So it's okay. been marked up almost 50%. Okay. Hey man, if you could, if you can make a buck, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> right. But all that aside, Brad, let's get into trying this. So I want to hear your thoughts on the nose of this mellow corn. Man, Bob, I, I've been trying. I, I'm really trying hard, but it just smells like ethanol. Like, mm. like I'm pretty sure that this is the corn fuel that they put into eco-friendly cars. So I have to say, I, you know, I bought the bottle of this when I went to Kentucky. So, Brad, the, the sample that you're drinking came out of my bottle. I've probably tried this four times before now. And this time around is probably the best experience I've had with it. I think that the nose on this, it's been sitting out for a few minutes, so maybe some of that ethanol has kind of evaporated off of it. I think it's really pleasant. The The nose, though, is as light as you would expect from something that's this light in color. It's sweet. It's got some oak. I can smell a little bit of char, uh, a little bit of smoke on it. When I pick it up and, and, and kind of tilt it a little bit towards my nose, I can almost pick up some like uh, like a lemon zest almost. It has a little bit of character to it, more than I was actually expecting. Um, so I'm going to give this a seven and a half on the nose. I actually think it's pretty pleasant. Man, I, I think for me on the nose, it smells a little bit more like lemon pledge than lemon zest. Mm. Um, I'm going to give it a four and a half on the nose. I think that's actually probably a, a fair point to make. It just depends on, you know, how much that that hint of lemon interacts with that ethanol on it. So, Brad, why don't we give this a sip? Huh. Yeah, it, it tastes cheap to me. Yeah, it's uh, it's really spicy, but I think it's more of an alcohol burn than spice, to be honest with you. It's thin. It's fairly sweet, but it's sweet in a kind of nondescript way. Like, yeah. I can't say, oh, it's it's caramely. It doesn't taste like caramel. It it kind of tastes like sweet corn has been <laughs> has been fermented and distilled. Yeah, I was um, going to say this actually and granted it should taste like this, but it tastes more like corn than any whiskey I've ever had that was a high corn content. Yeah, for sure. Again, I I tried this out of two different glasses. I've been doing that lately, one that's more angular and one one that's more rounded, almost like a uh like a snifter. Uh just to try to get some different scents, some different flavors out of it. I think this one is just kind of what it is. I didn't pick up a lot of difference between the two glasses. I'm going to give this a five and a half on the taste. I just don't see what all the hype is about on this one, Brad. Yeah, I'm actually right there with you. I, I gave it a five and a half on taste. It It's it is not offensive on the palate. No, but it's not very flavorful on the palate. <laughs> I think the finish is very bitter. And here's the thing. Sometimes you get a finish that the alcohol is the last thing you taste. So it kind of tastes like alcohol. Sometimes you get a lot of that sort of oakiness. I don't think it's that. I actually think this tastes like bitters. Like it tastes like a very herbal. I don't know how else to describe it. It doesn't even taste like uh, 
like citrusy bitters, like a grapefruit or anything like that. Yeah. It just tastes like bitter herbs. And I really, really don't like that. Yeah, I'm I'm right there with you. It doesn't have the lemon flavor that I kind of got on the front end. But like you said, it, it kind of tastes like some spices went bad in your cabinet. And you're just kind of left with this corn bitterness that I will give it credit. It dissipates very, very quickly. And I forget about it within about 30 seconds. So you lose it at least. <laughs> I don't know about that, man. I It really has a lasting sort of bitter note to it. And I'm going to penalize it for that. I'm going to give it a four out of 10 on the finish. Yeah, I'm I'm going to give it a three and a half. <laughs> I wow. am not a fan of this. All right. So that takes us to overall balance. This is where we talk about nose, taste, and finish all put together. Did anything stand out in a positive or negative way? Or was it one well-rounded experience? Honestly, Brad, I think the nose of this was the best part for me. I got a lot on the nose that just wasn't really delivered on the taste or the finish. Again, for a whiskey that costs less than $15, I am not surprised by that. And if this was like a $30 whiskey, this would be getting like a one on balance for me. But again, at the price point, knowing how cheap it is, knowing how cheaply made it is, I guess I'll give it like a five on the balance. It's not terrible. It just all went downhill after the nose. Yeah, Bob, it, it kind of is all terrible. I'm going to give it a three, uh, three and a half on balance. Like, like you can tell what they're going for and they kind of deliver, but it's not great. So it sounds like your opinion of this is changing even as we go through this. Because I think when, when we took a sip, you said it's not terrible on the palate. And now you said uh, it's all terrible. So Yeah, I that that's about the only part that I don't mind. Okay. But if, if the best part of a whiskey can be described as eh, I don't mind it, it's not going to get a very high score for me. So again, I paid $14 for a fifth of this. I would have really preferred that this would be at the $10 mark because I don't think it's fairly priced, to be honest with you. They're using used barrels. They're using corn, which is a really inexpensive product to use. It just seems like this is a $10 bottle of whiskey. And the fact that it's selling for almost 15 literally adjacent to the distillery that's making it, it's not like I bought it out of state at a huge markup. I think this is really overpriced, Brad. And even at this price point, I'm only going to give it a four and a half on value. Yeah, I, I think... Pretty much everything we've had this springtime of swill has been better. I'm going to give it a two out of 10 on value. I, I think 14 to $15 is way overpriced. You know, earlier I talked about, well, you know, at least it's not like a seven to $8 whiskey. I think that this is the value of a seven to $8 whiskey. I, so here's the thing. Like, we don't go into whiskey reviews, movie reviews looking to be negative. Like, I really want this to be super good. And I have seen nothing but positive reviews of this from from everyone in the really? whiskey community. I don't know what I'm missing. This is like it's it's like a lower shelf version of Buffalo Trace to me in that, like, I've never understood the hype behind Buffalo Trace. I really don't understand the hype here. So what I'm hoping for is if somebody really likes this product, that you will write us a description of what it is that makes this good to you or call in and, and argue with our final scores, because I just don't see it, Brad. Do you? Uh, not at all. Honestly, I, I feel like I need to go online and start reading some of these reviews because this just tastes like a cheap, poorly crafted whiskey. You know, like the, the flavor on the palate's okay, but everything else is pretty terrible. 
And I can't imagine spending $15 on this when you can get bourbons for less money that taste a lot better. Now, again, this is the first corn whiskey we've had on the podcast. Maybe this is just how the category of whiskey tastes, but we have nothing to compare it to other than bourbon, really. And so is it unfair that we're comparing it to bourbon? I don't know. You know, if we find another corn whiskey out there to try, maybe we will. Uh, But I'm coming out to a 26 and a half out of 50, which puts me just over the midway point. Brad, what are you coming out to? Yeah, I'm at a 19 out of 50, Bob. A 19, which brings us to a 45 and a half out of 100 or an average out of 50 of 22.75. I just don't think this is very good, Brad. I am not going to recommend. Yeah, I'm definitely not going to recommend this. In fact, I am for the first time in the Film and Whiskey podcast history. I'm going to actively say I would I would dissuade people from buying this. Don't (laughs) don't go buy it. So do you think this has actually earned the label of swill? Yes. Yes. This is the first you know, whiskey of the springtime of swill that I would say, yeah, this stuff is pure swill. And until they lower the price to match the quality of the product, they really need to stop uh, marketing it, you know, marketing it the way they do and marking it up the way they do. So let me ask you this one final question, Brad. The very first one we had in the springtime of swill was Canadian mist, which I am apparently the only person on planet earth that enjoyed that whiskey. Would you choose Canadian mist over mellow corn? Yes, I would, Bob. Oh, man. All right. So there you have it. That has been Mellow Corn. Let the hate rain down upon us. Uh, and Brad, while that hate mail comes in, what do you say we get back into talking about The Revenant? Let's get to it. So that was Mellow Corn, the first whiskey that Brad has officially labeled as Swill, and a whiskey that he would not even choose over Canadian Mist. So Heaven Hill will not be sponsoring our show anytime soon, I don't think. Yeah, and it's sad because Heaven Hill puts out so many good whiskeys, Bob, but they, this, they really one do. Is, this one is not one of them. All right, Brad. So before we left off before the break, we said we were going to get into a little bit more of a, a deeper analysis on the movie The Revenant. Before we get there, though, I actually want to ask you about one more technical thing, and that would be some of the visual effects in the movie. Now, they're really subtly done. You can you can only tell a few spots where there's very obvious visual effects going on. And the most famous one is the bear. You know, this bear sequence is what the whole movie was kind of marketed on and hinged upon. And in the course of the movie, it's kind of a really minor thing. I mean, it obviously sets the whole story in motion, but it's, you know, five minutes long and then... There's no real callbacks to the bear anymore after that. Brad, I want to ask you, first of all, what you thought of that sequence, but also what you thought of the visual effects. Did the bear look realistic to you? No. Honestly, I thought that was the weakest part of the entire movie. Mm. Um, I like I'm sorry. And I get so frustrated when people use CGI for stuff. Now, the (laughs) the obvious dispute with my complaint is. Well, we couldn't get a real bear to maul Leonardo DiCaprio. Hey, if they had, he would have really deserved that Oscar. Yeah, he would have been dead. Uh, My second largest complaint about this movie is that there's just 
I'm sorry, Bob. There's no way that this man would have lived. No, there's not. Like, like Tom Hardy was right. That man should be dead. Like, they they portray the bear attack in such a way, you know, when he finally rips into Leo's neck, like, there's no way that he missed his jugular. No. Like, that artery would have been spewing some bright red blood all over the, you know, ground, and he would have been dead. And that would have been that, and they would have moved on, and his son wouldn't have died, and it would have been fine. I... That, for me, for a movie that seems so heavily invested in the realism of nature and its brutality, it just seemed like a misstep to have a bear attack be the thing that, you know, kills him. Like, I I get that that scene was brutal and, and effective in certain ways, but I'm just curious if the writers of the script could have chosen a different you know, act of nature to have come close to killing him to set them up in this place. Well, I don't think they could because this this movie actually is based on a true story. This really happened. He really there. There's a man named Hugh Glass who really was mauled by a bear and who lived to tell the tale. Uh, they obviously took a ton of liberties with the movie. I don't really know. I don't know a lot about it. I haven't read into it, but I don't know how real Fitzgerald was or anything like that. But this survival tale is legendary you know, in that sort of mountain men genre. And so the bear thing really happened. So I don't, I mean, I don't know what to say about that. I will say as far as the the CGI bear goes, I remember it looking kind of, it looks good enough, if that makes sense. But it also yeah. is that, that very obvious uncanny valley where you can tell that it's a computer. I actually didn't mind the whole like bear breathing on the lens thing because I felt like it actually made me feel a little bit more like there was a bear in the scene. And I think the thing that you don't realize in the moment, and if you stop and think about it after the fact, DiCaprio was playing that scene against nothing. Like, there might have been a couple people in that scene with him with green screen suits on that were, like, dragging him around and moving him like the bear would. But his reaction to getting mauled by a bear, I actually think that might be the best piece of acting that Leo does in the whole movie because he's literally, there's not a bear in the scene when he's filming it. So I have to give some props to DiCaprio uh, for convincingly getting mauled. Yeah, I mean, he definitely is convincing in his portrayal of getting mauled. I guess I just, the CGI was very obvious to me and it forced me to check out. I was kind of like, oh yeah, Leo's going to get mauled by a fake bear. Okay, next. Mm-hmm. That that's mm-hmm. that was honestly kind of the take that I had with that scene. So okay, we've we've touched on the CGI, we've touched on the bear scene. Uh, Brad, I want to talk a little bit about the sort of deeper elements of this movie, and we we touched on it a bit before the break. I really do think Inuritu, as one of the screenwriters and as director, really gives this movie a spiritual underpinning. And we've touched on this before in the podcast. You know, Brad and I both work in churches. We're both Christians. I actually really appreciate when movies like this come out, whether or not it actually aligns with my own particular religious beliefs. I like it when Hollywood releases a movie that takes spirituality seriously, whether or not the people making the movie are religious or spiritual or whatever you want to call it. In the world that this movie creates, the lesson of this movie is that DiCaprio is in what we would call a liminal space. Like he is in between death and life. He's constantly on the verge of succumbing to his wounds and entering, you know, the spiritual realm or whatever you want to call it. His dead wife is a constant presence in this movie. 
And I actually really like the last touch of the movie, Brad, which is something that you didn't seem to like. After he finally has his showdown with Fitzgerald, it looks like he's on the verge of dying again. And he sees his wife and his wife kind of turns to lead him off in a, in a certain direction. And you can tell that what's happening here is like, is he going to follow her into death, into the spiritual realm? And he turns to look at the camera. And as he looks down the barrel of the camera, it fades out. And I really love that the overarching theme of this movie ultimately isn't revenge. You know, DiCaprio doesn't quite get his revenge. He ends up saying revenge is in God's hands. But there seems to be a spiritual element at play in this movie. There seems to be some sort of hand that is guiding all the things that happen in this movie, all of the improbable ways that Glass runs into people that help him, all of the ways that the uh, Pawnee tribe come out, come to help him at the end of the movie. It seems almost like there's some sort of divine plan that's ordained And what I love is that that's how they juxtapose Glass with Fitzgerald. Glass is is very well versed in Native American spirituality. He seems to have some sort of connection to the spiritual realm, whereas Fitzgerald dismisses God. And, you know, he he tells this story about how his dad found God and God was a big squirrel. He was starving and he was delirious and crawls up into this mott like this group of trees out there in the middle of nowhere sticking up in this ocean of scrub and he found religion at that moment he told me he found God Uh and it turns out the God he's a squirrel yeah big old meaty one I found God, he used to say. <laughs> Sitting and basking in the, the glory and the sublimity of mercy, I shot and ate that son of a bitch. And it lends this sense of like, I am God. Fitzgerald says at one point to Jim Bridger, I've saved your life twice now. I should be God to you. And you see what his choices and his actions lead to versus what happens with Leo. So, Brad, I, I guess I just want to gauge. You know, how aware were you of the sort of spiritual elements happening in this film? Did you feel like they worked? Did you feel like they didn't work? What did you think? I'm kind of in the middle on on the spirituality in this film. There's a certain sense of jarringness to me where I felt like I was shaken out of the film itself when all of a sudden Leo is laying on the ground and his dead wife is like floating above him. Mm Mm-hmm. There's certain parts of that that I just feel were indulgent and they didn't serve the purpose of the movie. I I think the moments of spirituality that meant the most to me was when you saw humans acting unselfishly in certain parts of the movie. When Jim Bridger, when they're in the ruins of a Native American village and this woman peeks out and instead of you know alerting Fitzgerald who surely would have killed her, he offers her a piece of meat and runs off. You know, it's moments like that that I think really make this movie beautiful that, you know, you have this colossal size of nature just beating down on Leo. And then in the middle of that blizzard of a nature attack on him, he finds this other Pawnee Indian 
who takes mercy on him and cares for him and really is the reason that he's alive. Yeah, for you know, sure. I, th- I think it's those moments where you see spirituality interwoven with human mercy and kindness. Those were my favorite parts of this movie. And so I guess that's the thing that I would ask is, is this movie celebrating humanism? Is it celebrating people's ability to be merciful towards each other? Or it, are, are those actions an extension of what he's trying to say with spirituality. Are they are they basically conduits for all of the spiritual uh, aspects of the movie? It reminds me so much of the Tree of Life with the way of nature and the way of grace, you know, with Fitzgerald representing a sort of godless existence or the way of nature, whereas Glass is really in touch with what's going on spiritually. And it almost seems like God or the universe or whatever is sending these things to help him because he's in touch with it. I think Inuritu does a really good job of showing how even nature responds to the spiritual things going on in the movie. Like when Fitzgerald stabs Hawk, DiCaprio's son, it kind of creates this violent windstorm. And it's like this way of showing that like all of nature is somehow connected to what's playing out in this guy's life. I, I will say, I think that one of my favorite aspects of the spirituality is when they they do kind of a flashback and his wife says something to the effect that the you know the winds and storms will blow but the roots of the tree will hold strong mm-hmm. and they kind of use that as a metaphor throughout the movie of like glass's roots are strong you know his roots with his wife and with his his son they hold strong throughout the movie, and you see that Fitzgerald is blown about by the wind. You know, he's tossed about like a small fishing boat at sea. And so you kind of see this rugged relentlessness in glass that you don't see quite the same in Fitzgerald. And, and I really liked that element of the spiritualism. One other thing that I really liked is that everybody in this movie had a motivation. You know, this was not your quote unquote cowboys and Indians type of movie. The Native American tribe that ambushes them at the beginning of the movie are even given a motivation in that they are looking for the chief's daughter who was kidnapped. And you come to find out it was done by a bunch of French trappers, but they refuse to make anybody in this movie completely black or white. You know, even Fitzgerald, as evil as he is, he's motivated by being pragmatic. He wants money. He doesn't have it. He wants to be able to move to Texas and retire, and he will do whatever it takes to get what he's lost. Everyone in this movie is dealing with a sense of loss. And I think one of the really great things about this movie is that it deals in grief and it deals in loss. And I think kind of underpinning all of the characters with this search for whatever it is they're looking for really helps drive the movie forward to the climax. Yeah, I I will say, can I comment on one thing? I, I really struggled with the casualness of the rape scene in the movie. Mm, Yeah. That I that really, you know, I, I just kind of sat up and was like, wait, did that just like he just kind of casually moves on and you see the, the French trapper, you know, raping the daughter of the chief. And, and granted, like he gets his comeuppance, he gets killed. And, you know, that like it's not like the director just like allowed it and was like, oh, yeah, that's fine. That's OK. Mm, yeah. But I don't know. It just it just happened so suddenly Man, I I don't know. It just bothered me a lot. That was a struggle for me. I understand that. I think that, and again, I'm not trying to justify anything here, but I think what Inuritu is trying to show was the sort of brutality and the carelessness that frontier life kind of brought with it. I mean, 
it seems like all of the actions that happen in this movie where people are, you know, shot with arrows or shot with guns or fingers are chopped off or they're mauled by a bear. It all happens so abruptly and so, I don't know, unceremoniously, like they don't make a big deal out of it. And I think a lot of that has to do with Inuritu as a director. But more to your point, Brad, I think that that is exactly what he was going for here is how unceremonious these, you know, crimes against humanity were in this time. Yeah, I this just kind of brings me back to a sense of what is proper to be filmed, you know, and is it appropriate to film these kinds of travesties? And I don't think it's always wrong to do it. I just, oh man, I, I guess I just think he could have been more sensitive to modern women who have been raped and mm. would see such a thing and just, I don't know. I, I just think that you could have insinuated the rape in a way without just brutally showing it that might have been more, uh, might have been less callous to the viewer. I think that's a fair point. And, you know, this is not a perfect movie, which leads us to our final scores. Brad, I really want to hear what you thought of the film, what kind of a score you would give it overall, having seen it for the first time. Does it stack up to Birdman, which is, you know, we just reviewed this season by the same director. What do you think of The Revenant? I I don't think it stacks up to Birdman. I think it's a really solid movie. You know, I, I'm kind of waffling back and forth here on what score I want to give it. Um, I, I think it's an impressive film. I, I think there's a lot to like about it. But I, if you haven't noticed, there's just little flaws throughout the whole film that that really kind of irked me. They, they they really frustrated me. And when you add on to that, the, you know, like we said at the start, the the fact that this really was Leo clawing for an Oscar. There's just a lot of struggles with this movie for me. But even with all of that, I, I still think it's a great movie. I still think it's worth being watched. And I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10. I think that's a really fair score, Brad. And I've actually been waffling between an 8.5 and, and a 9. When this movie first came out, it it really blew me away. I think that I wasn't prepared for it to be as deep, as spiritual as it really is. Um, and I think I was caught off guard by that. Watching it again this time with five years of space in between, I think this movie is kind of whatever it is, whatever you think it is. If you think it's just a shameless attempt for Leo to get an Oscar. Yeah, I can see that. If you think it's a really self-indulgent, you know, kind of cocky movie made by a director who wanted all the control in the world, I think it can be that, too. I mean, this movie went over budget by like 60 million dollars. It was just apparently a hellscape to film. He had Birdman come out. He gets a bunch of acclaim. He wins Best Director. They give him a ton of money to go make his big Hollywood movie. And this is what he comes back with. And I have to give him props for what he brought back as his big Hollywood movie. The guy didn't make a Michael Bay movie. He made this weird survival movie about spirituality. But if you want this movie to be something more, if you want to have a deep experience watching a film like this, I think you can have that too. And for me, that's what I have with this movie. I think I'm going to give this movie a 9 out of 10. It is flawed. It isn't perfect. But I think it is much more of an achievement than history is giving it credit for right now. And I really yeah. enjoyed I really enjoyed being able to go back and watch it again. Yeah, I would I would agree with you. It's a solid film and I think that it does get an unfair mystique about it um, just based on a lot of the stuff surrounding the film. But when you actually take the movie on its own merits, 
it's a solid survival film that deserves to be watched. Well, there you have it. That brings our final score out to an 8.5 out of 10, but we want to know what you think. So please get on social media. Let us know what you think of The Revenant. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Film Whiskey. Or you can give us a call. Let your voice be heard on our podcast. The phone number is 216-800-5923. Once again, that number is 216-800-5923. Next week, we're switching gears a little bit. We're going to go all the way back to 1965 and watch that year's best picture winner, The Sound of Music. For the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>